read 1 Samuel 31, you realize that the Bible is not, uh, it's not necessarily written like a novel. It's not necessarily a suspense thriller. It's, it, is Jewish, it is Jewish history. I don't even want to say Jewish history. And I don't want to say Jewish folk tales because it's true. But it's told from Jewish culture. It's the, everything in here that's written down was recited and told over and over again before it got written down. Some of it was even sung. And so it was taken from, and not for Samuel, but some of the Psalms were songs. And what we get are the lyrics without the music, right? It's like a song sheet without the, the bars on it. And so when we read this, here we are in 2022, 2021, and we're in the movies. We see movies, we watch movies, we read these novels that are compelling. You read these mystery books that have a twist at the end, and we bring all that baggage when we read the Bible, and sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, well, it's just not very exciting. And this is my, my encouragement to read the Bible really slow and to think about it a whole lot, because honestly, that's, that's, half, that's half of how I preach, <laughs> right? Is read it slow and think about it, and then realize what all is happening. So 1 Samuel 31 begins, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. What? When did this fight start? Well, this fight started, remember when Saul saw all the Philistines line up and they surrounded and it was a bigger army than ever before. And Saul didn't know what he should do. And he asked God and God's not listening. He doesn't have the ephod. He doesn't have the urim and the therm. He's killed off all the priests. And so he goes to this psychic, you know, this Madame Zorba lady fortune teller to bring back a spirit from the dead. And she conjures up Samuel. And was she lying? And is it all fake? Or is it real? The Bible doesn't really say that she was faking. And it presents it as if it really happened. So that's a whole other level of creepy. And Samuel says to Saul, Tomorrow you and your family will be with me. That's in chapter 28. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Samuel says that from the dead. Saul collapses. He's so weak. He's been fasting to try to leverage some spiritual power, which we know at this point is impossible for him. And so he eats and he is taken home. That was chapter 28. Samuel said, tomorrow you're going to be with me. Tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. Then we have chapter 29, which is David fighting with the Philistines, like arm in arm with the Philistines, being friends with the Philistines. So it's like a little, you know, cut scene. Then we have chapter 30, which is David fighting with the Philistines, getting ready to go to fight against Israel, gets fired by the Philistines. They say, go home. He goes home to Ziklag. All of Ziklag has been pillaged and carried off by the Amalekites. Loop it all the way back. Remember, Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites, and he didn't. And when he didn't, Samuel said, Samuel was alive at that point. Samuel said, 
God has taken the kingdom away from you and given it to someone else. At the moment of not killing all the Amalekites. So if you if you got all your cards going and you got all your notes going, hold on to the Amalekites. That, that's important. So there's David. He comes back to his hometown of Ziklag where the Philistines gave him land. The Amalekites have hauled all of his family and everybody off. They chase for three days. So you got your math going in your head. You got your calendar going. Wait a minute. For three days, David is chasing the Amalekites from Ziklag. He kills all of them. Wipes them all out to the person. Rescues his whole family, comes all the way back to Ziklag. Ah, they all settle down. They have a big old party. Some of the stuff that he got from the Amalekites belonged to cities in Israel. While the cities in Israel are surrounded by the Philistines, David sends the stuff back to those cities and says, This is from the spoils of the enemies of the living God. Signed, David. Okay, so it's total a political move and it's a justice move. Remember, Samuel said tomorrow. So by the time David gets back to Ziklag with all of his wife and kids, it's like four or five days, maybe even six or seven days after Saul was told tomorrow you'll, you and your sons will be with me. So if you were watching this on a movie, it would be cutting back and forth and back and forth. The way they tell it here, you get, oh, we're not ready to finish Saul's story yet. Let's go back to David. You get all the stuff that's going on with David. So here's my question. This happened to me. I was on a road trip one time. I don't remember where we were going. I was in college. I, don't, I, I went on a bunch of road trips and they all blur together, but... We were coming back and we missed a turn. And we were accidentally sent off into central Kentucky for about an hour and a half. <laughs> we were trying to go up 41. And I don't, we missed a turn. We were on all these parkways. We got back on the right track. We came back for like 45 minutes. And then we got back on the turn and everything was cool. And we're going up and sure, I mean, you know how the story goes. Sure enough, we come on the road and there's like a semi dumped over sideways and there's like four cars messed up and, and we're like, golly, this is crazy. The whole time we're lost, we're just cursing each other in the car and we're like, whose fault was this? Who did this? You weren't paying attention. Blah, 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 blah. And then we kind of get that realization that maybe that big hour and a half detour kept us from being in that wreck with that semi. Who knows, right? Maybe in heaven that... That might be about like my 65,000th question in heaven. It's not a high priority, but it might, I might ask it at some point in time. It seems like in this whole scenario, there's a strategic reason why. It doesn't say God did it. Because remember, there's a couple spots in here where God isn't mentioned, but every, you know God's hand is in it. That maybe David was sent away from the battle... And maybe, you know, God didn't send the Amalekites to haul all those people off. But Romans 8.28 says God uses all things to the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so I think God used the Amalekite kidnapping to keep David occupied 
so that he wouldn't be around for Samuel's, the fulfillment of Samuel's tomorrow. So as David is busy over here, there's these things happening that we're going to read about now that would have been really bad if David would have been involved in it. It would have gone terrible. But God used the sin of the Amalekites to save David from this. So verse 1, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. They're losing. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. So it's kind of nice we haven't heard from Jonathan for a long time because we just found out he died and this would be really sad, right? Because <laughs> Jonathan's awesome. He got struck down. His brothers got struck down. The battle hard, pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So it's kind of a little flowery speech to say the archers found him. They, they were shooting. They were filling him with arrows. They, they were able to find, like you'd say, it found its target. Right? So Saul... All of his sons, so that the, the heirs to his throne are dead. So the, the kingdom lineage of Saul has been cut off. Now only Saul remains. He says to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So he doesn't want the Philistines, who are unclean, They are not a part of the covenant of Abraham. They worship false gods. And he says, I'm injured enough that they're going to take me and mistreat me and and make a mockery and make a disgrace of me if they capture me. So, So kill me. Just kill me dead so I can be dead before they come. His armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly... He was afraid to kill the king. It's really crazy. Just that one, all you get is that one little sentence. But think about the position this guy is in. Who was Saul's armor bearer before this guy? King David. Oh, oh, sorry. David. (laughs) David was Saul's armor bearer. And David's life motto was... I will not strike down the Lord's anointed. Over and over, David said, I will not strike down the Lord's anointed. He's evil. He's wicked. He's trying to kill you. Like for the 16th time, he's brought out an army of 6,000 men just to kill you. I will not strike down the Lord's anointed. And we know that all of these tales traveled and moved around the way that song, Saul killed his thousands, David killed his ten thousands. Everybody knew all about David and the things that he said and the things that he, he, his exploits and his victories. And you almost wonder if this armor bearer is like, I'm going to do a whole lot of things, but I will not have the blood of the king on my hands. I will not kill the king. Wow. He was afraid. He would not. He feared greatly. There's a, um, there's a section in Romans, um, near the end of Romans, where Paul just fires off a whole lot of 
like fortune cookie, one-liner, bits of wisdom. Charmaine, you probably just woke up and had all these this morning since you're another year wiser. And one of them is, do not take revenge, leave room for God's wrath. And Paul is saying, basically, when you avenge somebody, when you, when you take vengeance out on somebody, there might be something that God was going to do that was, he was going to work his wrath. But you didn't leave any room for God to do it because you took care of it yourself. Does this sound familiar? Take care of it yourself. Remember King Saul? How many times through Saul's entire life were there times where God said, here is how to do it, Saul. Do this. And he usually said it through Samuel. And then Saul would be like, you know, I think we're going to do it this way because this would be a lot more righteous. And this would be a lot. Samuel says, kill all the Amalekites, even the puppies and the kittens. Wipe them all out. Saul says, hey, we captured all the best of their flocks and the best of their herds and the smartest of their people. And we're going to use all of them as slaves and we're going to offer all their best food up as sacrifices, which remember, a real sacrifice, you offer it, you cook it, and then you eat it. So God said, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your obedience. I don't want you to do all this highfalutin, thought-up, crazy religious stuff. I, want, I just want you to do what I said. Over and over, Saul depends on his own self to solve his problems or to do his things or to accomplish his goals. Or he had depended on other people that he shouldn't have depended on. Like that witch at Endor. I don't know what I should do. God won't talk to me. Instead of repenting in dust and ashes, I'm going to go hire a psychic. No! Come on, man! And so even here at the end, Saul is following the same pattern that he followed his whole life. See, right here, he could say, God, if the Philistines make a sport of me, avenge me. God, be my rescuer. Remember Samson? Samson had his eyes gouged out. He was blind. He had, he, uh, they would bring him before the Philistines to dance around and they would make fun of him as he would feel around and be a blind guy. They would basically make fun of the blind guy that used to be really tough and now can't even find his way around. And it says that they would, make, they would bring him in for entertainment and make fun of him. And Samson... His last words, he was like, God, give me strength one more time. Let me, in my death, bring vengeance on the Philistines. And that's different. That's not Samson, ooh, I'm going to avenge myself. It's, God, you see how awful these people are. Bring vengeance on them. Use me one last time. And it says that God filled him with power. He brought down that building and the whole castle collapsed. And he killed more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life. Which is, I mean, like he killed like 600 of them with a donkey's jaw, right? So 
we see from the Scriptures, there is a way at the end to cry out to God and say, God, work for me. Help me. Do this. And Saul was like, somebody kill me. (laughs) You. You have to do everything I say. Kill me. And he said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And he wouldn't do it. So you know what happens. The guy that does everything himself and doesn't trust anybody. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And he killed himself. The armor bearer. Where did he leave room for God's wrath? Nowhere, right? Saul did not leave room for God to speak up for him, to fight for him, to do anything for him in any way. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just it's messy in a lot of ways. He fell upon his own. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, his three sons, his armor bearer, all of the men that fought with him on the same day together. So it doesn't mean his whole army of 6,000 died or 3,000 died. It's just everybody that was around him, with him, died. Because then we also see when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So they basically just abandoned this whole huge section of the promised land, cities and all, made this massive refugee exodus because they knew the Philistines were going to come and take over all those cities. And they just left. They left section, huge sections of the promised land abandoned and so that the Philistines could come and live there. I want to say one little thing about suicide, just because it fits here, because Saul killed himself. Um, in the Middle Ages, in the dark, some people call them the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, um, this belief came up that you were only forgiven a sin if you were able to confess it. And that if you couldn't confess a sin, you weren't forgiven it. And so if you died, you would die in judgment with that judgment on you and you would go to hell because you had unconfessed sin. And that, of course, came up when uh, the church is selling indulgences and for a small fee, we can erase this many sins and for a small fee, we can erase that many sins. And it was just a terrible, terrible corruption and a terrible mess. So in the midst of that came this whole teaching of suicide being murder of a person. And since you died and you couldn't confess that sin that you murdered somebody, that everybody that committed suicide went to hell. Which logically that makes sense. The only problem is the first step of that logic is wrong. And so that makes the whole logical process wrong. Because it says in Hebrews, by one sacrifice, he was able to make holy, to make clean all who are being made holy. That when Jesus Christ died for your sins, 33 AD, he died for all of your sins. Every single one of them. Not just the ones that you remember to confess. Because my goodness, 
if we were only forgiven the sins that we remember to confess, then Jesus only saved one person, and that was him. And we know from Scripture that he has saved us all. That he has saved all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says that in Romans. Maybe I should preach on Romans. It says that in Romans 2 also. So the idea that, oh, you better be careful. You better get all your sins confessed because there might be one missing. So if you die, you'll go to hell is not a correct teaching. Uh, And I had a buddy named Audie, and he used to say to people, that's okay that you believe that, but that's not in the Bible. (laughs) That's a really kind way of disagreeing with people and and making them go to the Scriptures. Um, that, That Jesus completely, by one sacrifice, He completely saved us. That He died for all of our sins. Uh... We say it when we read through the the communion stuff in 1 Corinthians 15. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul never slips in there and you better make sure you know all of them that he died for and not miss one. No. God took him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And so this teaching that suicide people go straight to hell. Um, I have heard people use it to talk people out of suicide before, but it's false. And once your sins are forgiven, they don't catch up with you. They are gone as far as the east is from the west. That's in Isaiah. And um, they're counted against you no more, which is in a psalm of David that Paul also quotes in Romans. So we just put that to rest for good here. So Saul kills himself. The big deal that he kills himself is totally in keeping with his entire character, his whole life of not trusting God to do stuff for him. And then he does his own thing, even his own death. The next day, (gasps) wait, so this is verse eight. So get your timeline going. Saul goes to the witch at Endor She brings up Samuel. Samuel says, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. He goes into battle. He dies. Now you have verse 8, the next day after he died. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So remember, um, there's going to be a couple ways that they're going to identify that this is the king. He's going to be dressed unlike anybody else for one thing. He's going to have a sword because remember only the king and his son are the only people in the whole army, good grief, that have swords. So they're going to find them laying there. They're going to see this. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Do you remember why Saul wanted his armor bearer to kill him? So the Philistines wouldn't make sport of him and wouldn't basically play with his dead body. Didn't work, did it? The Philistines are, are uh, pretty gruesome. 
They carried the good news. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. So they hung his armor up in their temple to say, this is how great our God is. This is how great Ashtaroth is. I think it's really funny. I think it's like a joke. Like a hilarious, when you get it, oh my gosh, why didn't they hang it up in the temple of Dagon? Because Dagon's all broken in pieces. Remember? Remember how they, when they stole the Ark of the Covenant at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of Dagon. They woke up the next morning and Dagon's giant, probably chalk statue is broken off of its stand and bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant to show Dagon is nothing. Even Dagon submits to the God of Israel. Then the next day, they just prop up Dagon. Everything's okay. And they come back the next day after that. And Dagon's hands are broken off and on the threshold. And he's just smashed into pieces. And they're like, whoa. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we know Dagon isn't more powerful than the God of Israel. But Ast- Ast- what is it? Ashtaroth sure is. Because here's their king's armor. And they hang that up. I think that's funny. They hang his body on the wall of Beth Shan. This is a, a total shame thing. This is a total show of how weak he is, and, and he is our trophy now. Um, he's, as, he's as weak as a deer, a, a deer, or a, you know, if you're Jim, a squirrel that you would have uh, taxidermied on your mantle at home to show what you won, this great giant squirrel. That's how weak the the king of Israel, ladies and gentlemen. When else was this done? The king of the Jews, ladies and gentlemen. Let's hang him up. Let's show him how weak the Jewish people are. Pilate did this. Pilate hung a sign above Jesus that said, The king of the Jews. And it's really crazy when you look over... I mean, we just... All of 1 Samuel is the life of Saul, right? From the beginning of um, Eli, the corrupt priest, and his corrupt sons, and they all died. And Samuel becomes a prophet, and he makes Saul king. You get this whole story through the whole book, and you see through the whole book of 1 Samuel, all of the sins of Saul. And he is hung up practically with a sign that says this is the king of the Jews and we're the Philistines and we're bad news and we defeated him. And then comes along Jesus and you read the Gospels and you see what a perfect life he lived. Saul did not depend on God for anything. He didn't even depend on God for the way he would die. He didn't even say, God, I, I, however I die, I give it to you. He says, no, God, here's how I'm going to die. I'm going to die like this. I'm even going to control my own death. Contrast that with Jesus who came constantly depending on God. Every decision. If he didn't get a decision from God, he would spend all night praying until he got a decision from God. Until he heard from his father, here are the 12 disciples I want you to pick. Here are the cities I want you to go to. Here is how I want you to die. Submit to that. 
And so Jesus obeyed every last bit all the way to the end, dying on the cross, and the sign hangs over him, this is the king of the Jews. And it's a sign to us. It's a sign, I mean, it was a sign to them and it's a sign to us. Look, this is not the way for a king to live. Here is Saul, disgrace after disgrace, good grief. The one dude that brought him relief, he threw spears at twice. He almost killed his son once. He's terrible. Jesus comes and says, here's how a king is to be. Completely dependent on God. Do you remember at the beginning, all the people cried out and they said, give us a king, give us a king. And why did they want a king? To fight off their enemies, to draw them all together, to worship God in uniformity and in unity. Saul did a terrible job at that. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes to protect us from sin and death. Wait, maybe I didn't talk about that suicide thing on accident. To take away our sin completely, to be our king, to draw us together in unity, to follow him, to show us how to live and to protect us. This is the real king of the Jews. Wow. All right, so now we get this little epilogue. They hang up his armor, they hang up his body, they do all this stuff. Guess who hears about it? When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done, all the valiant men arose and went all night. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall. They came to Jabesh. Who are these guys? You got your, you got your Bible trivia going? Do you remember anything about Jabesh Gilead? These are the guys where it all started. These are the guys that were going to get their eyeballs poked out by that foreign king And they said, who is going to save us? And they sent word through all of Israel. Remember that? And this was the first thing that King Saul did. He obeyed God. It was the very first time and kind of the only time. And he went and he rescued these guys from getting their eyeballs popped out. And saved the whole land, brought the whole army together. And it was from that, that was the first big kingly move that Saul did. And these guys remember that. And they go back and they give him a proper burial and they honor his life and they honor his death. And that's how it ends. Isn't that like those guys? Yes. Like name your kids Jabesh Gilead. (laughs) Those guys are all right. They remember all this wrong stuff Saul did. All right. So by way of quick epilogue, I got to tell you what happens after this. Because we're not going on to 2 Samuel. David finds out about it. This all happens in 2 Samuel chapter 1. David finds out about it. And it's almost another joke. How does he find out about it? This guy comes. And he's all messed up and torn up and beat up. And they're like, dude, you look like you're a mess. What happened? He says, I just came from the battle. They're like, where are you from? I'm an Amalekite, he says. <laughs> like if you were there and you're around David and you're some of David's mighty men, the dude says, I'm an Amalekite. You're either going to go, uh, whoa, and you're going to take a step back or you're going to get your hand on your sword and you're going to get ready. Cause we just dealt with the Amalekites and we know what happens if you don't deal with the Amalekites. Then I says, I'm an Amalekite and I was a servant in the army of Israel. And there was a big fight 
and a giant battle, and I was walking along all the dead, and there was King Saul. And he said to me, kill me and strike me down so that I can die here. And so I killed him. He's telling this to David because he's thinking David's going to be like really happy. David says, how do I know this is true? The dude pulls out the armlet bracelet that would be around Saul's arm and the crown of King Saul. And he says, I took these from him to show you. (sighs) So David, remember David's motto? I will not strike down the Lord's anointed. Remember David's other motto? I will kill all the Amalekites. This poor dude is like double, like he's got like 10 strikes. Of course, David grieves. Oh, Jonathan. Oh, my buddy. Saul. Kill that guy. (laughs) He tells his men, kill that guy. They kill him. And uh, they all grieve. They grieve for days. And they grieve over the death. So here's this this poor Malachite dude was trying to get on the good side. Probably lied. Probably was pillaging the bodies before the Philistines came through and took the body away. Something like that. Really gruesome. Um, so of the 613 laws that the Jewish people are to obey, you know, that they broke it down, it always cracks me up. Number 613, do you know what it is? Kill all the Amalekites. That's what it's listed on there. It's like, oh. So if you want to read all this on your own and you want to go on on your own with the life of David, it all picks up with David as king and how he becomes his king. There's years of civil war. There's unrest. There's fighting to be who should be the real king. David rules in the southern part for like six or seven years before he finally takes over the whole thing. And they eventually beat out all of the Philistines and it's awesome. And um, I might, I might, we might come back and preach through that again sometime. We were looking over, we were talking about on the way here. There was a time that I was doing a book a month. And so I preached through Isaiah longer than a book a month. But, and um, we were talking about where to go next. And um, so Cindy's like, well, did you preach through this? What about this? Have you covered this? So we've done the whole New Testament, you guys. Except for the book of Revelation, which I'm not man enough to go through. <laughs> So next, I think we're going to go to Acts from here. The Acts of the Apostles. Some people say it should be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because of all the things that happened in it. But it's really exciting and, and I think it fits, oddly enough, for this spot because David has now become king. And if we were going to continue on, we would see how his kingdom spread and how his kingdom was built. Instead, we're going to jump to the best ever king of the Jews, the one true king of the Jews, and now his kingdom is being built. And his kingdom is being built the right way, and we see how all that happens in Acts. The other funny thing is, if we go chapter a week through Acts, guess when we'll be done? Ash Wednesday. (laughs) So I just booked the first third of your 2022. Um, so if you want to read ahead you can read through Acts and that's where we're going after this so 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for just the awesome things that you teach us and the way that you use history to guide us and instruct us and to encourage us. And I pray that you would do it, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us this week to lean on you and depend on you and to trust in you and to call on your name. Because we believe it's true, Lord, what you said, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Be exalted, Lord. We are so glad to be in your family and adopted as your kids. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Hey, Dan, I have a question. Yeah. How long did it take you to know the Bible the way you know the Bible? 47 years. How much? 47 years. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm always amazed at how much you know. Praise the Lord. I wish I knew a little bit. I have a lot of, I think the turning point for me, I have a lot of friends. And we said one time, what if we just talked about the Bible every night? And that really changed the whole trajectory of my life. And we did that for like three years. And we went, and now we still do. I mean, that was 25 years ago. And we still meet and talk about it and argue about it. So, thank you. Good. Good. (laughs) Hooray. Well, we'll see how Acts goes. May you you call on the Lord this week. God bless you all.